1 John 3:16 through 18. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Amen, dear saints. You may be seated. I've enjoyed this trek through the third chapter of 1 John. I like 1 John 3.16 too, Craig, as a beautiful verse. And also, two more sermons, Lord willing, out of chapter 3. Next week is extraordinary. I urge you to continue to pray for me as that's really a amazing sermon. This one too, before we go into it as always, we should always pray. It's such a serious matter to preach and to hear the gospel. So let's do that. Father, we know that this is the time where you stop the world, put a stick in the axis and just hold it steady for the whole world to hear Jesus preach through your church, especially the saints, the redeemed of the Lord, but really for everyone to hear it. For it is the word of God. We pray that you would grant to us humble hearts to receive the word of God. Jesus Christ, the ultimate word. We pray that we would be built up in him and our most holy faith and love you a lot more after hearing this sermon. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So incarnated love is the best and most valuable love. Incarnated love is exemplified in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ who broke into this dead, fallen, dark world that we live in. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, John 1.14. It's a beautiful thing. Love that's only propositional, theoretical, and or philosophical is not enough to either satisfy our human hearts, nor, even more important, represent to us adequately the glories of who God is in Christ Jesus, the Holy Trinity. Appreciated Elder Craig mentioning the Nicene Creed, that doctrine that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son may seem pretty insignificant, but it's actually huge because that holds the whole doctrine of the Trinity together. This is a glorious God we serve. Love must be incarnated for it to be real, to be felt, to be meaningful to us. It must be incarnated. And children, when we say incarnated, we mean Love with flesh and bones, love that can be seen, love that is human and divine. The Apostle John was an amazing man. He could go from the angelic heights of theological, philosophical glory as he did in John 1, 1 to 3. The word becomes flesh and dwells among us. In verse 14, And he could bring it down to earth for us so that we could enjoy that blessing today. Yes, we're lifted into heaven. Sure we are. But then we come back here to live on this terra firma for another six days. And we need Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. Isaiah 7.14, we need him every day. Therefore, let's make it our gospel goal on this 
Lord's Day, Resurrection Day, Sabbath Day of the New Covenant to embody the life of Christ as his church. We're going to look at 1 John 3, 16 through 18. Incarnated love, the doctrine. Incarnated love gets involved with God's people. Now, notice that we overtly mention God's people here in this doctrinal statement. That's very key and important. This doesn't exclude other people in the world, but it must start with God's children who make up his true, objective, physical, seen covenant community of the faithful, not perfect, but the faithful church where the gospel can be heard and trusted. Our getting involved with each other in the gospel church takes all kinds of forms since our needs are almost as varied as our personalities are. So even today we're going to get that opportunity as we not only sit together in the house of God and hear together the glorious gospel but then minister together downstairs and eat and fellowship and serve each other as well. Let's now better understand that incarnated love gets involved with God's people. First, our Lord Jesus Christ set the perfect standard for us. It's not by accident or happenstance that the great Apostle John opens his epistle section here in verse 16a with these words, By this we know love that he, Christ, laid down his life for us. The ultimate expression of supreme love is personal self-sacrifice. But when that is the ultimate sacrifice of the Son of God, it cannot get any better than that. We've reached the pinnacle of any conceivable love whatsoever. Alleged love devoid of Christ is not love at all. But all true love related to Christ both centers on him and gladly gives to him all that we have, everything that we are. We give it to him gladly because he is the ultimate object of our love. Everything else flows from him. If God had not taken the initiative in showing us both who love is, Jesus, and what our love does in response, namely show devotion, worship, adoration, praise, and thanks as his church, we would not know anything about love. We'd have no idea it even existed. All love, with absolutely no exceptions whatsoever, is found in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Incarnated love gets involved with God's people. Our Lord Jesus Christ set the perfect standard for us, and we are honored to be called to follow his example. So all true love shown by and to the redeemed church for and by each other is in reality the love of God in Jesus Christ flowing through us by the power of the Holy Spirit as he works in us. Now, is our love free of any and all faults and foibles and mistakes and sins? Do any of us have perfect love, even for God himself, let alone ourselves or even the closest ones to us? Of course not. Our love is flawed. There's no question about it. But this doesn't mean that it's not real, legitimate, and acceptable to God. God accepts the will for the deed. He knows the heart. If there is true love there, even though it's not what we want it to be, it's not as full, complete, and as exuberant as we would like, 
nonetheless, it's acceptable to God. So long as it comes to our living, saving faith in Jesus Christ, which bears forth in love, the aim being the glory of God and the good of the church. True love, true Christ love, takes all kinds of expressions and meets all kinds of needs in the body of Christ. And it's this kind of love then also that becomes the humble church's greatest evangelistic tool. Actually, what you're doing right now, what you'll do this afternoon, God's main form of evangelism, the gospel preached, Lord's Supper, prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, Psalm 23.5, the fellowship meal. This is what John 13.35 says, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. It is the love of the church for each other that is an irresistible, incredible force in the world. That is our greatest evangelistic tool. And any and all love that seeps into the world, and it does, and we want it to. We want the love of God in the church to be so exuberant, so full, that it goes over the edges and the the cup runs over and seeps into the world. And all love, real love that's in the world, comes directly from God, the Son of God working in the church to the rest of humanity. Devoid of this, the world knows nothing about love whatsoever. Despite all its claims, all its songs, all its ads, all its hopes, doesn't understand love at all. Oh, it gets lust, it gets all kinds of false forms of love, but it doesn't know. You are the only ones that can communicate that to the world. Let's do some exciting exegesis, verses 16 to 18, 1 John 3, and find out how incarnated love works in the living church. Now, I I sense a bit of a process in today's scripture lesson. It all ties together in Jesus. Now, whenever we use the word works, you notice that, how love works? Reformed pastors immediately get very nervous. And rightly so, because works is a, is a problem, right? So, but I'm going to help you understand. Yes, there's regarding justification, no works. Zero works, no works. But true justification leads inevitably to a compulsion to do works that aren't done to please God, to merit his favor, to expunge our sins, to assuage our guilt. No, none of that. None of that. That's not real love. That's not even real works. All true works done by growing, sincere, secure Christian churchmen are done out of love and gratitude for a God that we love and appreciate beyond anyone. So let us now more fully appreciate how incarnated love works in the living church. First, regeneration leads to replication, verse 16. By this we know, love, that he, Christ, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers, or sisters, of course. Now, recapitulate, replication, children, is copying or following an example. So, regeneration is being born again, is being made Alive, have a total death. It's a miracle of God. It's totally sovereign work of God. Comes upon people at all different times in their lives. 
but the sovereign God does it. And then we copy or follow his example. The reason the regenerated saints can do or would lay down our lives, quote-unquote, for each other in the church is because our master Jesus did it for us. Now, what does that really look like from a typically realistic perspective? It means that we seek each other's very best. That is the best and most helpful definition of love. True love wants the very best for other humans or any other being at all. And the very best, of course, is Jesus Christ in the context of the church, the worship of God, and everything that flows from there. That is what true love is. Now, could it mean throwing oneself in front of a bullet meant for one's fellow churchmen? Yes, in a dramatic case, it could, of course, mean that. That would be to lay down one's life for a brother or sister, but it could also mean a lot of other things. In most cases, it does, thankfully. It may mean taking a hit, quote-unquote, metaphorically speaking, for a weaker brother or sister whose infirmity of mind, soul, or spirit may manifest itself in various ways. It could mean a lot of other things, too. It means looking out for serving and helping one another as we observe the needs and the opportunities before us. At any rate, only the redeemed of the Lord, born-again Christian churchmen, can or would do this. And all of our strength is found in Jesus alone. How incarnated love works in the living church. Regeneration leads to replication and freedom leads to generosity, verse 17. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Now this verse 17 is very hands-on and tangible, isn't it? I mean, it's something that we can all relate to. I mean, everybody can practice this. The Apostle John is saying, look, if... We see our fellow Christian churchmen in need of anything, material or spiritual. He seems to be mostly emphasizing the material here, but I would say anything. And we have it within our God-ordained and supplied capacity to meet that need. Then let's do our very best to meet that need. We are one body, and I love the way you love each other. Well, I bet you we could even do better. And this text today just helps us understand that. Let's be sure we do it. Now, we are saying here in this point that freedom leads to generosity because that's exactly the way it works in the lives of spirit-filled Christian churchmen. It's not compulsion or guilt or a sense of obligation. I'm not denying that there is obligation. But it's freedom, it's joy, it's liberty. It's abundance that leads to Generosity, that's the way it works. And as we should all know by now, this big-heartedness of spirit must start in the local parish where we are members of the church. That's where it begins. And then it may, if possible, go out to other Christian churchmen elsewhere, typically starting closest to home. That's important. Interestingly, verse 17, let's look at it again in context. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother, major word, in need, and 
yet closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? Verse 17 is not teaching that genuine Christians have a God-commanded obligation to do this particular type of giving to just anybody in the world. This instruction here is clearly given to those in the faithful community of the church. Still, the principle of loving our neighbor as ourselves does mean that whenever we see any other human being in need, could be out on the street, car broken down, could be any other thing, you see somebody in danger, whatever it might be, any other need, any other human being, we do our very best to practically meet those needs that God puts in our path. Also, if some Christian wishes to branch out even further from his or her parish, once the needs are all filled up there and met as far as anyone could see, then he or she should feel free to go for it. More power to them. How incarnated love works in the living church. Regeneration leads to replication. Freedom leads to generosity. And finally, joy leads to reality. Verse 18. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Now, this verse is the spiritual equivalent of our putting our money where our mouths are. Okay, This is making real what we say. This is making a coordination between our utterances and our actions. And that's very important to God. Now, none of us do that perfectly, obviously. But it is the goal that we're shooting at by the grace of God. We do this out of the joy and pleasure we derive from God through Jesus Christ as we know him, love him, worship him, enjoy him, fellowship around him. That's why we do it. And to put it yet another way, the Apostle John, under the Holy Spirit's inspiration, is telling his fellow Christian churchmen of the late, probably, first century that true Christian love goes beyond words. Now, true Christian love obviously includes words. Because John himself is employing them in giving us this instruction. So John doesn't leave a gap there, a a void, and say nothing. He uses words. Words are important, but it must go farther than just words in our actions. What John means here in verse 18 is that our words and our actions actually correlate. They're consistent. Now, I don't think John the Apostle, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is saying never love with words, because that doesn't make sense. And he even commands us elsewhere to do so, as in John 21, verses 15 through 17 where Peter is reinstated through his thrice-affirmed love for Christ. But the Apostle is averring that our deeds are to be in harmony with our utterances to the best of our ability. So all of this is accomplished out of the sincere love we have for God in Jesus Christ. Now, dear, we're all in process. Let's just pick up where we are and seek by God's grace to grow in our love and our, our knowledge of and the fullness of who Jesus Christ is as we grow into his image. Let's do a little more application this morning and understand why incarnated love is necessary in the fallen world. Again, 
Had God merely written the gospel in the clouds, or sent celestial angels to this planet to preach the good news, or just dropped down here a book or a pamphlet or a tract, it would not have been good enough to meet our deep love needs. We had to have a human being just like us, yet without sin. And this is what God precisely gave us in the person of his Son, Jesus Christ, the God-man, Lord and King of all, the glorious one. Let us now better comprehend why incarnated love is necessary in the fallen world. First, because precepts, P-R-E-C-E-P-T-S, are not enough. Precepts are words, commandments, counsels, and admonitions. All of us fully grasp that they're important and even mandatory. I mean, I'm giving you precepts here today. Precepts are good. We need them, must have them, must have words, must have preaching, must have concepts, must have truth, must have the word of God. It all goes up there to Jesus Christ who is with us here. But they're not sufficient. This is one of the primary reasons that the church covenant life is so absolutely indispensable. You know, we've come through the the COVID era, and lots of churches are denuded because people just haven't come back. Um, And they, some of them, I don't know their hearts. I mean, human beings are very complicated creatures, not here to judge every motive, whatever's out there. I suspect many never were taught the importance of church. That's very likely. I strongly suspect it. Others just use a convenient excuse to get out and be done with it. Whatever it is, but there is no substitute for incarnational covenant life. No hologram up here, no video, no substitute for preaching ever works. God's program has always been the preaching of the gospel. The foolishness of God is wiser than men. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Now, of course, we live in a world people don't care. They don't want that. That's fine. It's not fine. It's not fine at all. But we know this is the way God works. And we must constantly appreciate the absolute indispensability of covenant life real life among each other in the church. After all, church life is incarnational. It reflects the incarnation of Jesus himself. A man with a Bible, a woman, a boy, a girl with a Bible is not fit for salvation. A man, a woman, a boy, or a girl with Christ, his church, and the Bible's clear instruction in the gospel of free and pure grace in Jesus is equipped, given all that is necessary at least, to receive the full forgiveness of sins and all the blessings of life that are in Jesus Christ. Do not ever detest words, especially those of the church's faithful gospel sermons, but always realize that they, the words, are leading us to someone even greater, and we're going to look at that now. Why incarnated love is necessary in the fallen world? Because precepts are not enough. We must possess the person of Christ with all his benefits. In the council of the Holy Trinity, even from eternity, before the creation of anything, it was God's plan and will 
that one of the three persons of the Blessed Holy Trinity would become incarnated as a human being and be placed in the created realm. That didn't happen because of sin. It happened because it was always God's decree. Ironically, though, have you ever thought about this? The only thing that would necessitate the incarnation would be sin. God could have been incarnated in a sinless world, but it wouldn't have been necessary. Adam walked in the garden and heard God's voice, and they sort of walked together, and it wasn't an actual human incarnation, but it wouldn't have been necessary. But sin made the incarnation absolutely necessary if anyone was to be redeemed and forgiven. In the true church today, we have among us the incarnated Lord Jesus Christ, the blessed Emmanuel, God with us, the aforementioned Isaiah 7:14. When I preach to you, Lord's Day to Lord's Day, Christ is speaking himself and his grace to you directly from heaven, if you are in Christ Jesus. When we gather in a little while, Lord willing, around this Lord's Supper table in this service, God is especially lifting us up into heaven where we sit with Christ and feast on and with him. We feast on Jesus, the bread of life, the wine of life, the water of life. In both cases, the Holy Spirit does the communicating to the redeemed elect of the church who gladly hear the word of God preached and the same blessed souls who get to be refreshed by the drinking of Jesus' blood and the eating of his body. The invitation, of course, is out for all. And yet, the table is reserved only for the baptized, covenanted, faithful members in good standing in gospel churches. And that's right. That's an impetus for people. What is the message for everyone? Come by faith, feast on Jesus, the true and only bread of life. After all, Christ shed his blood, not for good people, but for sinners like us. And he was raised on the third day for our justification, our perfect standing with God. Beloved, incarnated love is the best and only true love. Let us thank God for incarnated love. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for incarnated love. Thank you that you have given it to us in the person of Jesus. We don't really need anything else. We must have him. If we have him, we have everything. If we don't have him, we have nothing, despite what we think we might have. We thank you that Jesus Christ is your gift to us, your perfect gift. And you didn't wait for us to die and go to heaven to be able to enjoy him. You didn't even wait for us to die and go to heaven to eat with us, your church, the body of Christ. You've designed a blessed sacrament for us to do that. Pray that as we partake of Christ today, having heard him, we will feast on him by faith. In Jesus' name, amen.